Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that little short sentence. I want to start off today with just a blessing to you. I I want to say that when you receive a blessing, you are going to feel hopefully more secure, more loved. And there's a, a great book that I'm just kind of poking through right now about blessing. And it says, when we bless, we partner with God to release the essence of his adopting love. Until we are blessed, we are like spiritual orphans looking for assurance. But when we are authentically blessed, it's like being adopted. We know for sure that we are loved. When we are blessed, we become secure. When we become secure, we soar. So I'd like to bless you right now, right from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That's how I want to start the day. I hope you're having a good day. We've got a great show coming up. Rob Bluey is on the studio line. We're going to bring him on in just a second. The Dr. Greg Borgon is going to come into the studio, and we're going to talk about the progression to becoming a Christian. And then once you're converted, uh, what happens after that? So that'll be interesting. And then hour two is going to be my friend Jeff Verdorn, who uh, is going to be joining me as well, right from uh, his home in Arizona. We're going to talk about (laughs) living by faith. And I need to learn to remember to turn my phone off as well in the studio. So anyway, let's get things started. Rob Louie is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. I think of him more as my Washington, D.C. correspondent because he lets me know everything that's going on. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back with you today. Thank you. (laughs) So I want to start uh, finding out a little bit more about critical race theory. I did a little bit of poking around uh, this afternoon with it, and it said that the view that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interest at the expense of people of color. Now, as I contrast that to what Dr. King said, he said in his I Have a Dream speech, one day we will live in a nation where there will, uh, will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. How are those two working together? It's it's a great question, Bill, and I'm glad you started with this topic today because it's something that we've seen uh, President Biden recently take action on. In fact, last week he made racial equity uh, a centerpiece of uh, some of the first actions that he was taking uh, as president. And I think as um, as my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Mike Gonzalez, uh, so aptly said, uh, it, the embrace of equity means an abandonment of and it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who spoke about equality, and you just shared some some words with us. And I think it's unfortunate that we've we've so quickly pivoted in this way because this focus on equity and these beliefs of critical race theory, I think, will ultimately do do our country more harm than good. 
And we saw this firsthand in some of the things that were going on, even at the federal government with taxpayer money uh, in terms of uh, training programs, equity training programs. And uh, one of our visiting fellows, Christopher Rufo, helped uh, expose that and, and bring to light uh, some of the, uh, the various tr uh, trainings. And, and President Trump put an end to that. Well, Biden, as he's done one <laughs> so many occasions here in the first couple of weeks of his presidency, has completely undone that. And I think that uh, it, will, um, it will create a situation now where the federal government has its hands in areas where it really, uh, really shouldn't and where taxpayers uh, probably don't want their their hard-earned money going uh, to support. And I think that one of the most, um, sometimes it's best to just take a look at these things uh, directly, uh, the real life examples. For instance, the Treasury Department, uh, under this is under President Trump now, uh, before changes were made, had um, held a training session where employees were told that virtually all white people contribute to racism. And, a de and they demanded that the white staff members uh, struggle uh, with their own racism. The federal government uh, was built $5 million for this diversity training over uh, the course of 15 years. And so it's been going on for a while, and, uh, and I expect that uh, we're going to see even more of it uh, with this current administration. So it's one of the things that uh, conservatives are pushing back on because they just don't believe that this is the direction that we should be going. Is critical race theory something that can be questioned? <laughs> well, it depends what setting you're on. I think you and I can have a have a conversation about it on on, on this radio station. But it's uh, increasingly on college campuses and other forums. Uh, no, it's it's not something that uh, that is easily questioned or or debated. And I think it's unfortunate because uh, it is uh, it is something that I agree with you runs counter to the message of Dr. King and others who. Uh, I respect and admire, and particularly as we are now entering Black History Month and we look back at, at so many of those voices, uh, like Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington and other leaders who, who spoke about issues uh, that, that our country was confronting at the time that they were alive, uh, they didn't speak in the terms that you now hear today. And I think that that's, that's troubling, uh, that we, we find ourselves in a situation where we're pointing out... Um, uh, very clearly that that all white people are must be racist um, under this theory and uh, and and even though there are some of us who who strongly object to that uh, you know the pressure from whether it be big tech platforms or whether it be the government itself it's hard to escape um, and uh, you know we're increasingly hearing it from the pulpit too bill so yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where uh, people should feel uh, the freedom to speak up and, and share their perspective in mind. It's not to say we can't learn from each other and we uh, there isn't racism today. I do believe there is racism in America. But I think that uh, to to blanket uh, put a blanket statement that all white people are racist is, um, is going a step too far. Mm -hmm. Rob, would you explain the difference, if you can, between uh, equality and equity? Sure. And uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm going to um, try to get the quote here from uh, our vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, directly, because okay. um, she put this out uh, in advance of the election. And she says uh, there's a big difference between the two. Uh, equality suggests that everyone should get the same amount. Uh, but she says the problem with that is that not everybody's starting out from the same place. So if we were all getting the same amount, um, you know, and, but you're starting at a lower rung, you wouldn't necessarily be on the same same playing field. And she's saying that that's the case with so many uh, people, so many minorities. So equity attempts to bring everybody up to the same level. 
Um, and then she says that they'll be able to compete on an equal footing. Now, <laughs> I, I, I beg to differ with some of, uh, of, of her explanation about this, but I think that um, it's also counter to what we, what we believe in in the United States of America. We are not a socialist or communist country where we, um, we, we, don't, we reject that kind of principle. Uh, we believe that everybody should have the opportunity to succeed in, in the world today. And whether it be in education or business, and, and there are so many success stories in our country, we probably don't do enough, uh, a good enough job talking about them, Bill, because I think people forget about them. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense, um, I think that the challenge that we have with equity is that essentially it's going to limit some of those opportunities. And it's going to, to try to create, um, in, this, in this effort to create a, a more level playing field, I think we're all going to be probably... Uh, in a situation where we don't have uh, some opportunities to succeed. And I think it's going to affect people from, you know, from the time that they're in school to sports. Um, I mean, and you look at the various ways that the Biden-Harris administration is trying to impose government regulations to deal with this. And I think that it's really troubling that uh, that the government is putting its hand in an area that traditionally has kept uh, its hand out. Mm-hmm. Rob, I know you've been a, a conservative your whole life. Um, so, Having said that, is there a piece of encouraging news you can speak of uh, in terms of what the new administration has done or is doing that you are um, uh, excited to talk about? Yes. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that uh, one of the areas where there there is uh, agreement is is largely around the response to, to COVID-19. Well, I'm sure that there are some listeners of your show who, who agree or disagree with uh, with the president's um, uh, mask mandate. I think it's it's a step we have been recommending uh, from the time that we had our National Coronavirus Recovery Commission at the Heritage Foundation. So uh, the steps that I think we can we can call Americans' attention to you know, to protect themselves are, are really valid, and I'm glad to see uh, putting an emphasis on that. I'll give you one specific example where I think that there um, has been some really good progress and where uh, probably there's, there's even more uh, that he can do um, to, to, to ramp up um, help. And, and that would uh, do with the self-testing. Um, these rapid tests that Americans can access to, I think, give themselves the confidence to go out and, and carry on uh, kind of normal everyday functions. The, um, the Biden administration uh, has supported um, a new rapid test. It's bought tests that were approved by the FDA. Um, it's going to be that uh, we're going to get a shipment of over 100,000 uh, per month. And uh, we're going to be in a position where uh, we can have millions of these available uh, for Americans to use. And these rapid t- uh, self-tests are so critical because they will give instant results. They'll help restore confidence in the American people. And frankly, I think that, that as, as so many people wait for a vaccine bill, like I'm not, I'm not going to be eligible for a vaccine probably for months. It'll give me an opportunity to you know, feel confident going to the grocery store or going into the office as I did today. And boy, we should talk about <laughs> this fencing uh, project all around uh, the U.S. Capitol. It is uh, quite a sight to see with your own eyes. Um, but, you know, so there is uh, there there is hope and, and there is uh, some common agreement. And, and I think that those are the areas where where the president is right to put his attention, because this is a pandemic that has has already taken so many lives and so many people are still suffering from it. Uh, this needs to be our nation's number one priority. Rob, how long do you think the fences are going to stay in place? 
It's hard to say. So okay. the um, the pre- the former president, President Trump's um, impeachment trial starts on Monday. I actually met with a uh, a congressional staffer today, and um, in a socially distanced way, Bill. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so I, I asked that very that. question. <laughs> I asked that very question. I said, um, you know, what's it like uh, getting in and out? Um, so no one is permitted on the Capitol grounds unless you have a uh, congressional ID. So unless you work, you're a member of Congress or a staff. Um, or, or support um, services. And it extends far beyond just the, the U.S. Capitol itself. So it, the, the fencing almost goes all the way to Union Station, which is the, the main train station in Washington, D.C., which um, you know is, is probably, I would say, a good half a mile from where the actual Capitol building is. And it, it's, a, it's a quite a large perimeter. Obviously, this was done in response to the January 6th riot. But I think that um, the local residents in Washington, D.C. are starting to rightfully ask questions about what is the security threat and why do we have uh, this disruption to our neighborhood? Um, the Daily Signal's office and the Heritage Foundation headquarters are right there on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're not in that perimeter, but it abuts us uh, right right up uh, to Second Street um, and, uh, and and Massachusetts Avenue. So it's, um, it's something that uh, I hope will come down uh, after the impeachment uh, trial concludes. And we can uh, hopefully get back to a situation where there's uh, a free flow of activity again on Capitol Hill. Uh, certainly not something that I think um, anybody wants to see last uh, uh, any much much longer. But, Bill, Washington, D.C. has a changed place uh, since the pandemic. Uh, we've still got buildings boarded up in the downtown district near the White House from the riots that took place this summer. So it'll probably be a while before we see our capital city recover. All right. I'll take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest. And we'll be back in 90 seconds. My guest is Rob Bluey, my Washington, D.C. correspondent and executive editor over at The Daily Signal. So, Rob, I, I think what I hear is that the national debt uh, expands by about $100 million an hour. So even that short break we took, we really racked up a lot of debt. Now, we've got both Republicans and Democrats to blame on increasing debt. But what are we doing now about the debt? Are we taking it seriously or are we uh, headed for uh, some more spending? I wish I had better news for you, Bill, but we <laughs> we don't appear to be taking it seriously. Okay. And, uh, but and both this, are at fault, well, Republicans last... and Democrats, for sure, right? <laughs> they cer- they certainly are. This is one where everybody uh, deserves the blame. Uh, I think the last time anyone took the debt seriously was when Republicans were in the minority, and um, well, re- Republicans had the had the had the majority in Congress, but uh, but but had but Barack Obama was in the White House as our president. And they, the two sides were were forced to put into some uh, put some constraints in place. Of course, it, it was you know way back to the Clinton years when we actually had a, a balanced budget and uh, and things were um, looking okay from a financial standpoint. But then, of course, nine eleven uh, happened, and uh, we we racked up a lot of spending during the Bush presidency. Um, we had the financial collapse in 2008. Obviously, Obama came in and wanted to spend a lot of money early on um, to to have um, a big stimulus, which unfortunately, I think, dragged on that recession a little bit longer as a result. Uh, President Trump uh, did not make spending uh, cuts a, a priority. I mean, he proposed them in his budget, but he ultimately ended up signing uh, a bunch of bills that uh, that expanded our, our debt. And uh, And now you have 
um, unified control in Washington, which usually doesn't lead to, to spending constraints. It's just the opposite. And so what do we see if we if not uh, a proposal to to spend more money to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, we've already had um, $4 trillion in spending just on the pandemic wow. alone to address uh, everything that's been going on. They want to add another $2 trillion on top of that. Uh, this, you know, just pales in comparison, you know, everything else pales in comparison to the amount that is being proposed here. And we should recognize, Bill, that this is unsustainable. Um, the, the number is actually so large that it's hard, uh, I think, for, for us to fathom sometimes. $27.8 trillion dollars. Uh, in federal debt, um, which amounts to $210,000 for every U.S. household. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be <laughs> writing a check to the federal government for $210,000. So if we can't get it under control, I'm not sure what we do, but it puts us at a disadvantage from a national security standpoint. Um, and, and it also, uh, I think, burdens future generations in terms of their ability uh, to confront some of the challenges that they may face. And so don't want to just pin it all on the baby boomers and those who have been in control of our government. But um, but obviously, there's there's a, a need for some fresh thinking uh, in Washington, D.C. on how to how to get this under control. Rob, when was the last time there was um, a controlled uh, national debt? When was the last time it felt like it was kind of reasonable? I would well, Bill. I think you have to go back to the Clinton administration, okay. the late 1990s. Um, so, whenever you have divided government, and particularly if you have a Democrat in the White House and Republicans in the Congress, uh, and that's the situation you had. Republicans controlled the House and the Senate, so you had Newt Gingrich at that point, Speaker Gingrich, and you had uh, Bob Dole. And you had uh, Bill Clinton in the White House, and they were forced to come together and compromise. And it was at a time when they were able to put together a balanced budget. And so it's been a long time. It's been over 20 years now. And and that's why we find ourselves in, in such, a, such a precarious place. And it has an impact on things that will affect people in, in, in a real life way. So, so Medicare uh, will be impacted. It, it's scheduled to go broke in 2024. Uh, Social Security disability insurance is, is going to go broke in 2026. And the Social Security Retirement Fund, which, you know, is probably one of the most popular programs, uh, will go broke in 2031 if no changes are made. So this is uh, going to have a significant impact in, in just a, a number of years. And I don't hear any serious proposals coming from, from Congress on how to fix this other than just kicking the can down the road. That's pretty disturbing. It is. And it's not we're not going to fix that problem by tinkering around the edges. Why, you know, having, uh, you know, some cutting uh, foreign aid or wasteful spending. I mean, those all help. But we need to be looking at looking at some big structural changes to to some of our programs in terms of how how better to address this problem. And and I think one of the things that we should avoid doing is just having the government churn out money. Uh, we, we need to look at a balanced approach where. There is there, there there's you know market based solutions. The the private sector has 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 a role to play. The good news in all of this bill is the economy when it when it tanked um, you know twelve years ago uh, when when President Obama was coming into office uh, is quite different today. The economy the underlying fundamentals of the economy tend to be fairly strong. So we don't necessarily need to pump more government money into a stimulus plan. But um, but that appears to be the direction that Congress is headed. Mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, Rob. Would you talk a little bit about the uh, 1776 Commission? 
Yes. Well, the 1776 commission is, is also like where we started our conversation, Bill, something that uh, the President Trump created that uh, the President Biden quickly um, quickly rescinded. Mm-hmm. So you will recall that President Trump gave a speech kind of at the height of um, the, the riots that we were, that were taking place um, this summer on July 4th at Mount Rushmore. And he talked about uh, the, the importance of, of American history and recognizing those heroes throughout our history and, uh, and really establishing 1776 as the true founding of our country, which I think so many people took for granted until the New York Times came along and tried to assert that 1619 was actually the true founding when the slaves arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. And, uh, and so the, uh, the president established a commission uh, to look into this, and that commission completed its work just days before the end of President Trump's term and uh, completed a report, which was, uh, which was actually received a contribution from the Heritage Foundation and one of our scholars. And, uh, and that qu- a report was quickly erased from the White House website on January 20th, the very day that uh, Joe Biden took office. Uh, the commission was disbanded. And, uh, and his people were basically sent out and said, well, your, your, your work is, is no longer needed. And I think it's unfortunate because uh, what they were trying to do was really put an emphasis on, on the true American history that, um, that, that our founders uh, created our country uh, very bravely in 1776, fought a war uh, with, with uh, Great Britain over it uh, to, to give us a constitution which uh, still guides us today. And I think that uh, there's probably, as we've talked about in the past, not enough recognition in schools, uh, maybe at home, about uh, about the importance of some of these uh, historic lessons. And uh, when we forget our history, I think we're doing a disservice to everybody uh, because we're probably going to repeat mistakes that uh, could otherwise be avoided if we, we took history seriously. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea to rewrite, rewrite history, is it? It is It is not certainly <laughs> not a good idea, and it is uh, it is something that I think um, there are are so many notable his, historians. I think one of the things that I, I found, found disappointing was there were a number of historians who came out, I think, just to criticize the 1776 commission report purely because it was something that the Trump administration decided to do. Uh, there were some really great people who worked on on this report and were served on that commission who I think had the best interests of our country at heart. And you may disagree with Donald Trump and not like him personally, but that doesn't mean that uh, you should just throw away all of the good work that was done. And I think that um, you're hearing about that from people today and some of the other actions, like the, the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline bill. And real people have lost jobs and are now suffering as a result of these actions. So they do have consequences. And uh, and uh, our heart goes out to those people who uh, who don't have a job today as a result of that. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for, again, uh, sharing with us your, your wisdom and insight as to what's going on in our, our great capital. I appreciate you very much, and I uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Bill. Yep. You too. You bet. Rob Blue has been my guest. He is, of course, executive editor over at The Daily Signal, and he's also a uh, heck of a nice guy. Anyway, we've got a great uh, next segment coming up with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to talk about what leads up to becoming a Christian and then what happens after that. I think you're going to love this. And then hour two ahead is uh, Jeff Redorn. We're going to talk about living by faith. That's the plan. Be right back.
what's for dinner, Dr. Greg Borgon, my guest, was just talking about this cooking class he took and some of the exquisite meals he makes for his family. <laughs> lemon, chicken, garlic, what? Yeah, yeah, uh, garlic, lemon, roasted ah, chicken with vegetables. Sounds so good. It's mouth-watering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, nice to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah. We're going to talk today about uh, the progression from um, being lost to saved. Yeah, Is yeah, that exactly. Easy way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in 1975, Ingalls put out this uh, scale. It's called the Ingalls scale. It was it, it was embedded in an article on on communication that I became aware of years ago, and I thought it had such application. You know, my mind always thinks in graphs and charts, mm-hmm. and so when I saw this, I thought, "Wow, this is a this is a great chart to help people understand the progression from being an unbeliever." to being a fully devoted follower of Christ and the, the path one takes to spiritual growth once they make that uh, decision to follow Jesus. And I've adapted it and revised it over time, and certainly your audience is welcome to a copy of it. Uh, if they contact you directly, we'll make sure that they get one. Yeah, in order to do that, you just put um, in the subject line, Greg's chart. <laughs> is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. And just email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. This is really nice. All right. It's well laid out. Anyway, Greg's chart, bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll email you this document. Great, great. Let me just walk us through now. Let's assume for a minute that you might, uh, a person you might know starts from a position of agnosticism or atheism or just doesn't believe whatsoever. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And because every human being that's ever been born in every era uh, has, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity into each person's soul, yet not that he's know what God has done from the beginning to the end. And, and that's really general revelation. It's that spark. It's the image of God that's in us. And it compels us to ask questions repeatedly in our life, in the privacy of our own moments, when we're being more objective, you know, why am I here? Am I making any progress? Will what I do have any lasting impact? Those are all questions that are put on the heart by God to move us towards a position where we're ready to hear the gospel and consider the claims of the gospel. And most of us want to suppress the truth, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, because we choose to live an independent life. We want to live life on our terms, but when we find out it's going sour, we end up turning to other things uh, that we've uh, forgotten or we put on the back burner. And everything we generally trust in in this life, apart from Jesus Christ, will ultimately let us down, Bill. And those things are very tempting, aren't they? Oh, they are. I mean, you can get consumed by them if, if you are a passive individual in the sense that you allow the world to weave its way into the, the woof and fabric of your very soul, you start mouthing the words that come from the world until you're shocked by a circumstance or an event or an encounter or even the conviction of the Spirit in a, in a dire moment, then you start to consider it. So the interesting thing to note, Bill, is that God will interject himself at various points in our life up until the time that we die. Even if we haven't received Christ, he never gives up on us. It says in Scripture that all of us are in the palm of his hand, that he, he's going to search after us. No one comes to, to Jesus Christ except to the Father, and he does his work through the Holy Spirit. So it begins um, by 
you know, create or not creating a circumstance, but interjecting himself in the middle of a circumstance that get us to move up this ladder, so to speak. First of all, it may start with believing in the existence of a supreme being. Uh, our worldview may have not accommodated that up to that point, but now because of what we experienced or somebody else's experience or maybe a testimony of another follower, we're going to start seriously consider. well, maybe there is a supreme being. Maybe there is something beyond this life. So then we move to the next step, probably through the urging of, of the Holy Spirit, even though we wouldn't say it at that time because we don't even know he probably exists, discovering God's attributes and character. And Romans says that's in his creation. We start to see things around us and say, you know, this can't happen just by happenstance or coincidence or by some mistake. This is just too complex. So then we move to hearing we actually hear the good news. It may be from a friend. It may be something we're reading or something we hear. It may be just a phrase that we've picked up. Or we may have actually sat under the teaching of somebody because they invited us to church or they invited us to a particular workshop or a seminar or a conference. So we hear the good news. We don't comprehend it yet. We may not even feel we need it, but we start to move up that process. Now, this is special revelation. When we started considering even the existence of God, that's what we call general revelation. So now we're at the stage of, of special revelation where we're having the gospel proclaimed to us. It may be by an evangelist or by the other means that I talked about. And then we start to get a deeper understanding of at least knowing the good news. We're still rejected, or maybe we're just not embracing it, or maybe we're just apathetic about it. Then we move into understanding the good news and its implications. So now we're faced with a dilemma. Do I embrace it? Or do I reject it? And there's always the decision that we make. We could reject it at that moment, but God doesn't give up on us yet. So then we might move to the stage of agreeing with the good news, but maybe not for me. Maybe it's for my family or, oh, that's what my wife does or that's what my kids have gotten into, but it's just not for me right now. Because we may be so used to living in the dark side that that's where we find the greatest comfort. And we're afraid at, the, at that point what we're going to have to give up if we go ahead and embrace this thing called the gospel. So we may agree with its uh, content or its claims, but we're still not ready for it. So then we move to a point, uh, maybe again at the basis, at, on the basis of a crisis of, you know, admitting personal problems. And we might not share it with people that are closest to it, but we feel it in our soul. And the solutions we've used over time to eradicate these problems just don't work anymore. Mm. Or they're short-lived. We try this, we try that, only to find out it gives us temporary relief, but no lasting change. We can't get out of it. We recognize that through our own devices, it's impossible for us to resolve the issues and that we need to get some help. But we still aren't going to turn to the gospel, even though it offers that help. Because most of the time at this point, we're still fearful of it, or we're worried again about what we're going to have to give up. But then we might come to the position in our life where all else has failed, or we've heard it uh, for the hundredth time, and now all of a sudden it makes absolute sense 
and we realize we need to act. We may put off that act. We may procrastinate over time. We may be carried away by the tyranny of the urgent, or maybe even it's something else that we're, that's diverting our attention from what's important. Because it says the enemy prowls about looking for someone to devour. What he wants to do is isolate us from any proximity to the gospel, whether it be embedded in a person we know mm-hmm. or a message we hear or even in our own soul of the urging of the Holy Spirit. But let's say we finally decide to make a decision to act. We're finally at the end, and we're saying, you know what? The independent life that I've been living hasn't given what I thought it was going to give me. And the things that I've accumulated, whether it's materialism or it's status or it's position, it just doesn't last very long in terms of the satisfaction that I was expecting from it. So that's a crisis of the soul. So if we finally capitulate and we bend our knee and decide to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So we're going to obey the gospel. We're going to submit uh, to the authority of our Heavenly Father through the prompting of the Holy Spirit We're going to confess our life of sin and recognize that there's nothing we can do to eradicate it. And we need that forgiveness. We need that release. And we finally decide to repent. That is a turning of 180 degrees from what we thought, what we believed, and how we lived. And we finally receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, it's interesting, Bill, that most of us, are more than happy at that point to receive Jesus as Savior because there's benefits that are accrue to our account, eternal life for one of them, um, the fact that we're, we're saved. But some of us are still even hesitant at that point to embrace his lordship, which is a recognition we're under new management, that there are obligations that come with those benefits. You know, when you take a look at a passage like Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God appears to us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to prepare for himself or a people eager to do what's right. So giving up or acknowledging that we need to turn away from those acts of defiance and disobedience and sin, um, that happens uh, right away, And but we may still hold back. doesn't mean we're not saved, but we still may hold back on embracing him as the Lord of our life. And sometimes people make rededicate their life to the Lord uh, when they finally realize that they are under new management. Mm-hmm. So this conversion, this moment of conversion is instantaneous. When we finally capitulate, we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, even though we might not know what that totally means at this particular point in time. But there's several things that take place at that very second. I'll just list them. The first one is justification. We're justified. In other words, we're just, it's just as if we'd never sinned at all. We receive this imputed righteousness from God. He paints us with this brush called Jesus Christ. I've also heard it's just as if you've always obeyed. Just as if you've always obeyed. 
And interestingly enough, there are eight to ten passages in Scripture that talk about God blotting out our sin at that point. Wow. Putting it behind us. We remember it because we don't have the capacity to blot it out. And the enemy likes to remind us of it all the time. Mm-hmm. But God, it says, God blots it out. He sets it behind him. I like that word, blot. Yeah. It's a good word. So that's what we mean by justification. At that very second of conversion, there's also redemption. We're redeemed. We're bought with a price. Uh, that's Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made. We once were slaves to a life of sin through our own disobedience. And, in, and the only one that can remove us or redeem us from slavery is someone who's paid the price for us being that slave. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus Christ. That's what redemption means. And then there's reconciliation, where we were estranged from our Heavenly Father. We're now reconciled to Him. We're now friends of His. Mm. As a matter of fact, we're now members of His family. We're finally reconciled. It didn't mean that He stopped loving us because we were sinners, because He showed His love for us and what Christ did at the cross, the finished work of the cross, and his resurrection. That's a powerful thing. So his love never abated, but we were estranged. We had broken fellowship. There was a gulf now between us and our Heavenly Father. But at this point of conversion, all of that's it's like he put this bridge across this, this vast chasm that existed between him and us. And all of a sudden now, we're reconciled to him. I think that's good news. That is That goodness. is off the good news. Greg, let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg, but he's put together this really swell chart. And you know me in charts, so if you want a, <laughs> a copy of his chart, uh, email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. And just in the subject line, put Greg's chart. I don't know exactly which chart to send. So bill at myfaithradio.com. Be back in a minute. Can't think of a better theme music for Dr. Greg Borgon than this soundtrack from the movie Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're talking today about um, going from lost to being saved and the process that is involved, and Greg has laid this out on a really nice chart. This is really interesting with great scripture verses to support it. If you want a copy of that uh, chart, I can electronically send it to you. All you have to do is send me an email, put in the subject line Greg's chart, and then email me bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll get it to you. Hey, well, we just talked briefly about this, the moment of conversion, the very second of conversion, all these things that take place, which we probably didn't realize. So we talked about justification, redemption, reconciliation. And the next thing is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually takes up physical presence in the, our soul, in the core of our soul. And it says that his other roles, the Holy Spirit's roles of teaching and encouragement uh, and empowerment are now accessible to us because he lives in us. He, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that is a guarantee of our salvation. It's as if, you know, there's a lock and no one can break that lock but God and he's not going to betray his promises to us. 
So it's a guarantee of salvation. So that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is so critical. The moment that takes place, Bill, we start to see the scriptures differently. We read them differently. We look at life differently. Unless we allow, again after the fact, the world to cascade in on us and overwhelm us again or believe the lies of the enemy that wants to remind us of the failures of our past. And I just want to say to the audience that that's what the enemy will try to do to you as an infant in Christ is remind you of the failures of your past and try to convince you you can't break out of it. If you are being reminded continually of the failures of your past, it's not from the Lord. It's from the enemy because God wants to bring you to the victory of your future. Mm -hmm. The enemy wants to remind you of your past. And the struggle, frankly, Bill, is... It was right here in the present, but God is God and Satan is not. Mm-hmm. So hey, the indwelling. Yeah, I love that. Just I got some questions coming in from listeners, and one is about under new management, which caught someone's attention. Can you say a little bit more about lordship? I find lots about Jesus as Savior, but little about lordship. Well, lordship means that you're turning your allegiance over to Jesus Christ, that he now has the right in his word to make demands of us, frankly, and that we're to submit in obedience to those demands mm-hmm. or those commands, if you will. So placing yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ is recognizing you're not your own anymore. You are bought with a price. That when you went to the foot of the cross to receive Jesus, you gave up all of who you were, and he returned back to you who you truly are. So you lost your humanity before Christ, and now God restores that to you. But you're under new management. You recognize that you have to obey. You've made a decision, Bill that Jesus Christ and his word is going to now be on the throne of your life and is going to govern, inform, condition, and establish what you believe and what you value. Because truly, what you believe and what you value at the core of your being will determine the quality of behavior it produces. So if you want your behavior to change, you have to change your beliefs and your values. Mm -hmm. And if your values and beliefs are going to be biblical, you need to place Jesus Christ on the throne of your life the Word of God on the throne of your life. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. You have to know what the Word of God says. Yeah, that's what it means to go ahead and embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. is knowing that. Yeah. One other question that came in, uh, Do and this is kind of more of a loaded one, do you believe we gain faith through our choice, or is it a sovereign act of God, or can it be both? Gaining faith? Well, first of all, there has to be some degree of exercise of faith to receive Jesus Christ to begin with. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that come? It from depends God, on what they really mean by faith. Well, yeah. sure, because yeah. God's always there. Now, he's, he's often been referred to as the Hound of Heaven mm-hmm. <laughs> because He never gives up on us. And so, what's stirring in us are the embers of that image of God that is embedded probably under the ashes of terrible decisions we've made, mm-hmm. sins in our life. And so, a fresh breath of the Spirit all of a sudden wells that up into a flame. And so that faith begins to grow, and, and it's trusting in what you don't see. The enemy wants you to only trust in what you see. Hebrews 12, 1 talks about faith being trusting and hoping for what you don't see, mm-hmm. what you see, the byproducts. It's like seeing the wind um, pushing a, a, a curtain. You see the curtain move, but you don't see the wind. Mm-hmm. But you know the wind is responsible for it because the curtain moved. So our faith tells us that when Christ comes into our life, we start to see the results incrementally in the changes that are being made in our life. We don't embrace what we used to embrace anymore. We don't like often the things we used to embrace, even though we get attracted to them on occasion in our moments of weakness. 
But that's the breath of the Spirit. That's when our faith starts to grow. You know, a lot of people are slow to say Savior and Lord. They, they, they want Savior, but they don't know if they want Lord yet. Yeah, that's so right. that's the sanctification process, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a submission. You've got to submit to it. And people are... Uh, you know what God's Word says, though, first, right? Yeah. 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 It's hard to submit to what you don't know. Yeah, what you don't know. But as you're exposed to the Word of God and you see its implications in your life, it's not an overarching um, weight that you're carrying because Jesus says his, his burden is light. It's a matter of expressing love in a different way to the Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. We express our love, it says, all across the New Testament in obedience to him. That's how he receives our love. It's not an emotional um, pronouncement, I love you, Lord. It's how we live our life because of our love of the mm-hmm. Lord that demonstrates our love for the Lord. So the indwelling is followed by regeneration. We're given a new heart. It says we're given a new nature. Uh, Solomon liked us, when he was living his life on a horizontal plane devoid of any vertical relationship with God, said that there's nothing new under the sun. He used that phrase 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what he was saying is, yeah, that's true. If you choose to live apart from God, if you choose to live your life on a horizontal plane devoid of any uh, commitment to God, any vertical relationship with God, you're going to come to that conclusion. But in Scripture, it says you're given a new song, you're given a new nature, you're given a new heart. That's all the regeneration process. Bring it on. So God, it says in Scripture, gives us everything we need to live a life of godliness. Everything we need. So we're without excuse. Do you hear that, everybody? That's (laughs) such good news. Then we're adopted. Here's the neat thing. (laughs) All right. This is when you give up your passport to the world. This is when you say, I'm no longer of the world. Because it says in Scripture, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. You're given a new passport. You may still hold your old passport, but the fact is you're no longer of this world. As a matter of fact, it calls us at that point sojourners or aliens in a foreign land. And you've heard me use the illustration before. It doesn't mean we live behind walls in a Christian ghetto and we tie verses to rocks and throw them over the transom and hope it's going to hit a non-Christian. They'll read the verse and come to Christ. No, it means that we're to go into the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now our citizenship is heaven. Is in heaven. We have a new constitution. We have new rule of law, so to speak, uh, rule of conduct. Mm-hmm. We have a new heart, and we're to live in allegiance to the kingdom of God. Like a boat is on the water, but it's not in the water, unless it's it's a submarine, you know, so. You know, as we progress through the world, the world rubs off on us. And there's a reason why the Word of God is called the water of the Word, because we need to be washed by it Mm -hmm. regularly, Mm -hmm. because of going into the world. We're called into the world. As a matter of fact, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. So that means you have to be in the world, but not be of the world for the sake of the world. So that's what it means for adoption as sons and daughters. The other thing that happens instantaneously is, as I talked about, is the kingdom's uh, citizenship. But we also receive the seed of the fruit of the Spirit. I often correct people uh, when they talk about fruits of the Spirit, because it isn't fruits, it's singular. It has nine components, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Just like an apple, a singular apple has a core, it has seeds, It has rind, it has pulp, it has a stem, but it's all an apple. Mm -hmm. So the fruit of the Spirit, we're given that seed 
of the fruit of the Spirit, which really is the values that are God's values. It's the heart of God. And we're to cultivate them, it says in Scripture, so that we can produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. But they need to be cultivated in our life. But we're given that seed at the moment of conversion. All of that happens, folks, at the moment you're converted. And then you start on this path of renewal. And so you baptized, you um, submit to teaching, you uh, become a disciple. So first of all, the first thing that happens after you come to Christ is you start to evaluate the decision. Oh, we're running out of time here. I better get to this, this quick. So you evaluate the decision. You move on and you become a part of a local congregation. You start to read and study the Bible and pray and have fellowship with believers and worship. And you start transforming the behavior through the power of the Spirit, understanding, embracing, biblically-centered beliefs and values. Mm -hmm. And you're on the road to spiritual growth, to maturation, to um, availing yourself of the sanctification that's given to you by God. Nicely done. Dr. Greg Borgon's been my guest. He's got a nice little uh, chart of all of this with... All the scripture verses laid out for you. It's pretty sweet. If you want a copy, just uh, put in the subject line, Greg's Chart, and then email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com, Greg's Chart. I'll give it over to get it over to you. And thank you once again, Greg. Great, oh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. here. Take a short break. Hour two is just ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.